You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. All right. So, we're talking about loving those we disagree with. Let me tell you a little story. Once upon a time, I'm told, people used to have discussions about things and disagree and still like each other after the end of the conversation. (laughs) They used to be able to get together and talk about things well into the night. It was considered, uh, and sometimes, some even considered it an edifying and unifying uh, activity where you would actually meet with people who disagreed with you and talk about your disagreements, and the result of that would be growth and further understanding and camaraderie. I know, it sounds crazy, (laughs) but I have historical evidence that it did, in fact, it was actually that way at that one point. Here, for example, is Thomas Jefferson saying, I never considered a difference in opinion and politics and religion and philosophy as cause for withdrawing from a friend. Wow, isn't that interesting? We have biblical evidence for it as well in Acts 17, Paul shows up in Athens, Greece, which was a city that was known for debating ideas and challenging one another's thoughts in a pursuit to try to understand truth. And he went around giving the gospel, and we read in Acts 17, 19, it says, and they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, which was apparently a place designed and maintained for the purpose of having these kinds of discussions. I don't know anywhere that we have that today. Certainly not the internet. (laughs) And he said, may we know what this new, they approached him and they said, what is this new teaching you're proclaiming for you're bringing some strange things to our ears and we want to know what these things mean. You're talking about things that we don't understand and that we haven't heard from before and it kind of contradicts some stuff that we think is true. Would you come and talk to us more about that? And the author gives us a little footnote here. Uh, Now, all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling and hearing something new. They liked that. And so Paul did. And the result of that was some of them said, "Ah, you're full of it. And the others said, we want to hear more. Will you come back tomorrow and we can discuss these ideas more? That's something that used to happen. And what's happening right now in our culture is highly destructive. We are tearing each other apart because of our refusal to be be willing to hear and understand and interact with people that we think are wrong. We are degenerating into accusations and personal attacks and attacking people rather than discussing their ideas. And everybody's falling for it. It's the mob gone wild. And we are losing something important. An ad hominem attack means against the man. The definition is is appealing to feelings and prejudices rather than intellect or marked by being an attack on an opponent's character rather than on the the connotations, the contentions made. That we should be able to have ideas and we should be able to disagree and though the merits of those ideas should be tested and our conclusions should be based on the merits of those ideas. And it used to be considered bad form to attack a person instead of an idea. And today, that's virtually all you see. I give you modern news. Have any idea that the State Department? So then you know the libel law. Okay, shut up, Shut up. Okay, hold on. Shut up. You don't know what you're talking about, Chris. You don't know what you're talking about, idiot. I do. This is not Jerry Springer. Okay. I remember as a younger man, there used to be something called Jerry Springer where this happened, and then you would go to the news to find out what's going on in the world. And they would bring in experts in their fields to discuss different issues of the day. 
people who were centered around ideas. And, the, and the, the thought was you would present these ideas and allow the, the viewer to draw their own conclusions. And we have lost something critical. We've lost something really important. The Bible says, Proverbs 27, 17, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another, that we are supposed to sort of rub against one another and bring these ideas and to be, have truth and our pursuit of truth forged out of st- the stress and the contention of different ideas, that this is a healthy thing, this is something that's good for us. And it's very dangerous, it's very concerning that we are losing this ethic. And just to make myself even more popular, I got to tell you, the fault lies with you and me. Because listen, news stations only do at the end of the day what gets you to tune in, and politicians only do at the end of the day what gets them elected. And I'm not blaming Mr. Giuliani. I'm not blaming, blaming President Trump. I'm blaming us. Because we are responding as the mob to this kind of behavior, and we have allowed ourselves to be led by individuals on the left and the right who think that this is the way to win elections, And this is the way to persuade people to your ideas. The problem is, on both sides, is the lack of ideas and the the degradation into kindergarten behavior. And as people who are fearfully and wonderfully made by the hand of God, who are knit together in your mother's womb, who are very valuable, who are loved, who are given brilliant minds, and who are born for the pursuit of truth and love, we can do better. We must do better. And Christians should be leading the way. How we doing? Our culture is more divided than ever. Just torn up tribalized and pointing the fingers at one another. Here's a study that's very interesting. It it studies sort of the conservative versus liberal leanings of the two parties. It goes all the way back into 1879, and it's about how people vote in the parties. And what you have in this graph back here, 1861, is a little disunifying event called the Civil War, okay? And you can see they were pretty far apart back then. And then what happened was World War I, World War II, that kind of brought people together and closer in terms of they agreed more. They didn't agree on everything, but there was just a general consensus of what we should do. And now you see where we are now is even further apart than during the Civil War. Arthur Brooks, in his book, Love Your Enemies, writes, a January 27 Reuters Ipsos poll found that one in six Americans had stopped talking to a family member or close friend because of the 2016 election. A far bigger share of the population has sorted social life along ideological lines over the past few years by avoiding the places where people disagree with them, curating their news and social media to weed out opposing viewpoints and seeking out the spaces from college campuses to workplaces where they find the most ideological compatriots. We are being driven apart. There is an active effort to polarize us and separate us into two great extremes. And the result of this is is that our nation is becoming increasingly divided into tribes of people who only interact with and hear and communicate really with people they already agree with. That we're hearing less and less that the enemy that we disagree with is being characterized more and more to the negative to the point where we don't even hear them anymore. They've been demonized to the point where we believe they're ruining this country. And only we and the people who basically agree with us are right and should have the opportunity to make decisions. And everybody else is wrong. 
And social media is programmed to do this for us. I don't think it was intentional. I don't think they sat down and said, hey, 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 Mark Zuckerberg, I'm going to tribalize America. I think consumerism has driven to the point where everybody wants to give us what we want and no one wants to give us anything that makes us upset. That's how you treat a two-year-old, isn't it? That's how, you, that's how you stop a baby from crying. That's not how adults figure out how to solve complicated problems. Paul predicted that this was going to happen. Second Timothy, he's at the end of his life. He's writing to his disciple who's basically going to take and carry on the mission. And this is, this is Paul's last will and testament, or the closest thing to it that we have, writing to his beloved son in the faith, who's much younger than him. And he says, listen, patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. If ever that were more true than now, I don't know when. He says they will reject the truth and they will chase after myths. It won't matter to them what's true. What will matter is, is what will make them feel good. But you, he says, but you keep a clear mind in every situation. Don't get sucked up into this. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. People are not going to like to hear from people they disagree with, but that may very well be God's call for you. And don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Work at telling others the good news and fully carry out the ministry that God has given you. Share with them in the midst of this climate the thing that they need more than any other thing. The gospel, Jesus Christ on the cross. Arthur Brooks says, across the political spectrum, people in positions of power and influence are setting us against one another. They tell us that our neighbors who are disagreeing with us politically are ruining our country. That ideological differences aren't a matter of differing opinions, but reflect moral turpitude. That our side must utterly vanquish the other even if it leaves our neighbors without a voice. That's the root and heart of what's happening in America. The polarization and the contempt that is being fueled for the other side. And so the question that we want to talk about really is what are we as Christians to do in the midst of such a tragic degradation? Should we pick sides and join in? Should we go ad hominem and, and, and begin an ideological crusade? I mean, that's literally the decisions that some have made. Let's go and de- attack and destroy the people we disagree with in order to defend what we love. That was the battle cry of the crusades. We stand back and look at the Christians of the Crusades and say, how do you wield a sword against your fellow man in the name of Christ? How do you do that? And then we use the sword of our mouth to do the very same thing to our neighbor. We're in the middle of a crusade. That's where we are. Are we going to attack others who disagree with us in the name of Christ? Or are we going to follow Jesus' example? Are we going to look to him? You know, there are a lot of important political matters that we have to be engaged with. You know, one of the things I worry about with Xenos, you know, we've historically been very apolitical, non-political, and I kind of love that because I would prefer to be that way myself. But the problem with that is, is that we, politics for Americans is a stewardship. We have a say in what the most powerful nation in the world is going to do. Now, your say and my say may be very, very small, but just like we give our money and our time and our efforts and our energy 
to God because he is the owner of all things, we should also try to use our vote for good. And that means we have to know what's going on. We have to care about what's going on. I think we need to move a little bit away from apolitical and more toward nonpartisan. Meaning we don't pick sides on this front in terms of one side of the world system versus another side of the world system, but we do the best we can with, what, with the resources we've been given to understand and invest in all areas of our lives. It's definitely clear that neither political party and our broken two-party system has cornered the market on what's important to God, regardless of what you may have been told. Both have good ideas and both have terrible things and ideas and both are run by largely carnal, selfish people. And we need to navigate this as a community, as a church, for our own unity. You know, Xenos is about 50-50 progressive conservative. A fact, by the way, that I love. I think it's awesome. It could destroy us, but <laughs> so far so good. But as the political rhetoric, as the vitriolic hate boils among us in our culture, we are living proof that there's something more important than politics. And there's something that can bring people together who couldn't disagree more on how to solve our problems because we know that there is something greater than the problems of this world and that we can love one another, that we can sit by one another, we can have community together even though the world says you have to choose and it's either your way or the enemy's way and that's the way it is. So, I say, I think we have an opportunity. I think right now is the perfect backdrop. It's the perfect environment. It's the perfect time. We were born for a time such as this. To show the world who Christ really is. And that he teaches us to love our enemies. What, what a message that is needed in our culture today. And there's three things I think we can do. The first one is we can represent Christ prioritizing the preaching of the gospel over all other things. Jesus and his message of love and reconciliation, our need for our sins to be forgiven, his act of dying on the cross where he took the punishment for our sins upon himself is the most important thing. It's more important than anything else. And that is where, that's the hill for us to die on, guys. Right there. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.20, he said, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. We are ambassadors. You know what an ambassador does? He goes and represents the will of his nation and its leaders, not his own ideas and thoughts to a people in a foreign land. It's to represent the ideas of someone else. If we are Christians, we are ambassadors of Christ, which means it is our primary responsibility to show and portray who Jesus is and what's important to him over and against even what we think or feel ourselves. Because we are his representatives. And if you study the New Testament, you see that Jesus and the disciples really lived this out. The most hot-button political issue of Jesus' day was the Roman occupation of Israel. Absolutely divisive. They were, Jesus' ministry was happening around 30 to 33 AD. They were about 30 to 40 years away from Utter and, utter and complete rebellion against an impossible empire that would wipe the, the Jewish nation from the face of the earth for 2,000 years. 
And so they are just a hair's breadth away. The climate, the hatred, the, the, the vigor, the passions, people were being assassinated in the streets over this issue in Jesus' day. It didn't get more politically divisive. These Gentile, meaning non-Jewish overlords, had come in and dominated God's chosen people with their pagan religion, with their false images of false gods, with their abhorrent sexual behavior. They had come in and conquered the people of Israel and were ruling them and forcing them to pay taxes. And there were a lot of Jewish people that were saying, the Messiah is going to have to come and take these jerks out. And they were praying and trying to pave the way for that to happen with guerrilla warfare. That was the cultural milieu for the entire situation for this passage. So Jesus is a teacher, and he's telling people about the love of God, that he's come to, to seek and to save that which is lost. He's come that the blind may see, that the deaf may hear, that they may know that there is a God in heaven, and they can be reconciled to him through his forgiveness and through his love. And the Pharisees, the religious rulers of his day, were threatened by this because they were running the business and getting wealthy on people paying their money to get made right with God. And so he was an absolute threat to them, and they decided we're going to have to take him out, and the best thing we could do is take him out in the court of public opinion. They weren't fools. They wanted to publicly polarize him in the same way our politicians and spiritual leaders are trying to polarize us so that we will lose half our audience. And so in Matthew twenty-two fifteen, it says, the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap Jesus and what he said. And they sent disciples to him along with Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God and truth and defer to no one for you are not partial to any. See, we get a picture right there of what Jesus was all about, don't we? Here they are, and they're saying, listen, we know that you don't choose sides and that you don't get wrapped up in political stuff, and you know, that's not what you're about, but we want you to do it. <laughs> Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay our taxes to these Romans who have conquered us? And Jesus perceived their malice. He knew what they were trying to do. He wasn't a fool. He knew that if he said, don't pay your taxes, then half the population would be like, yeah, he's a zealot. He's one of us. We're going to overthrow Rome. And the other half that just wanted peace and didn't believe that they had any chance or hope at all of ever defeating the Roman Empire and just wanted to lay low and hope that the Romans would go away would have been like, I'm not going anywhere near this guy because he's got a death sentence over his head and so do all of his followers. Because when the Romans heard that Jesus was saying, we don't have to pay our taxes, Jesus would be killed. He knew this. And he knew that if he said, no, you should pay your taxes, the Romans would be like, that's our boy. And all the people who just wanted peace would be very happy, but all the many thousands of religious zealots, people who were zealous for the freedom of Israel, would view him as a traitor to his people, and they would not listen to his gospel. So Jesus, perceiving their malice, says, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is on here? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. It's a brilliant answer. It's almost godlike, you might say. <laughs> it's so good. It's so good. They're trying to trap him into this position onto these two different sides, and he understands that picking sides is a dangerous position to be in. You know what else is bad is saying nothing and saying it doesn't matter because it does matter, and people know that. So Jesus could say, pay your taxes. He could say, don't pay your taxes, and he, says, he could say, I hate that question. That takes a lot of study, and I don't know, and I don't want to formulate opinion on it because it doesn't matter, in which people will say, 
(laughs) What you think about anything doesn't really matter because this is important. He doesn't do any of those things. He gives the perfect answer. He says, whose picture is on that coin? And they're like, well, Caesar. And he says, so you are participating then in the Roman economic system. And they're like, well, yeah, we kind of have to. And he's like, well, if you're going to participate in that system, you should play by the rules. See, what he does is he tells them what to do without legitimizing the Roman occupation. He doesn't say there are rulers, we should therefore pay our taxes and it's God's will that we be under Rome. He just says, if you're going to spend their money, you should give them their share. And they're like, "Mm." he engages with the importance of the issue while not taking anything away from the message of the gospel or people's ability to hear it from him. There's other ways that he exemplified this. If you look at the 12, everybody's heard of the 12 disciples, right? You know, they were like the inner circle of the inner circle. These were the people that Jesus invested in the most, his closest friends, a ragtag bunch of people from all kinds of different backgrounds, socioeconomic and political. One of them was named Simon the Zealot. Zealot means he hates Rome and wants them gone. Another one of them was named Matthew the tax collector. Tax collector means he loves taking taxes from his own people and giving them to Rome. They could not be further apart on this issue. And yet they were brothers in the inner circle of the community of Jesus Christ. I'm sure there were some interesting fireside chats going on. between Simon the Zealot and Matthew the tax collector, but I'm sure those arguments ended with, thank God we have Jesus, and that's more important. You can look at Paul. What were the important issues of his day? Roman occupation of Israel. He's writing and operating about 20 years, so he's in the 50s. Same stuff is going on, except they're even closer to this rebellion that would boil over and result in the ruin of the nation of Israel. He says, much more bluntly, pay your taxes. We're not leading a rebellion here. We have more important fish to fry than this question. He's very clear. You say, well, you know, they they weren't dealing with the crazed, despot rulers of today. You know, uh, they didn't know what to do. You know, we look at people, you know, in our society today and our rulers and the immorality and the corruption and... (laughs) Okay, the, the, the Caesar at the time that Paul wrote, Romans, was a guy named Nero. Nero makes all of our politicians look like innocent schoolboys, doves with angel wings. <laughs> Nero, Suetonius would write about Nero. He said one of Nero's favorite things to do was to capture his political enemies usually senators of Rome, tie them naked to stakes, and then he would himself be put in a cage, dressed like an animal. The cage door would be lifted, at which Nero would leap out and claw at their genitals. Now, I don't know what goes on behind closed doors at the White House. (laughs) Any administration's White House. But... None of them have anything on Nero, okay? And yet, what is the word? What does the Bible say? It says, pray for your rulers and work within the political system that you're given. A third of the population of Rome were slaves. A third of the population in slavery. Now, slavery was more like indentured servitude. It wasn't the horrible atrocities uh, of of. American slavery in the 1800s, but I mean, it was bad. You would, if you were a slave, you did not enjoy it, and you did not want to be a slave any longer than you had to be. And look at what he says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.1. He says, all who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor. You're supposed to respect your masters. Now, that is not an endorsement of slavery at all. What that is is It's telling them how to behave toward their masters, and he gives them the reason, so that 
What an important so that. Why should I respect my masters in a corrupt, terrible system of slavery? So that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. The gospel is more important than your freedom. I know that's so hard for us to understand as 21st century Americans that there would be anything more important than our freedom. But Paul felt the fact that people were under the judgment of God and, spending, and going to spend eternity in hell was more important than the personal freedom of those people at that time. It wasn't that he endorsed slavery. It wasn't that he liked slavery. In fact, he says, you know, if you can get your freedom, you should. But what's more important than your slavery is your master's eternal destination and the gospel of the message of not only the masters, but of all people. And if we become an anti-slavery movement, and that's our identity, we will lose the gospel. And we can't do that. He says it again in Titus 2, 9 through 11, urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters and everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Why should I be this way? For we have the gospel happening here. It's more important. People will say, well, slavery, that was a big one, Ryan. You you really pulled out a big one. But it's not like abortion. You know, we have babies being killed in the hundreds of thousands. They didn't have anything like that going on in Paul's day. Wrong. They had worse. It was called infanticide. In Paul's day in Rome, the way that they did birth control was a woman had a child. She brought it to her husband. And if he gave that child a name, then that child was allowed to live. If he decided not to give that child a name, the child would be left in a field for the animals and the dogs. And we have mass graves and know that this happened. Commonplace. Let me read for you a horrible excerpt from a soldier named Hilarion to his wife that has been preserved. He says, Do not worry if all others return. I remain in Alexandria. I beg and beseech you to take care of the little child, and as soon as we receive wages, I'll send them to you. If, good luck to you, you have a child, and if it's a boy, let it live, and if it's a girl, throw it out. You had Aphrodisus to tell me, Don't forget me. How can I forget you? I beg you, therefore, do not worry. Do you see the flippancy? He just wrote his wife a letter. Obviously, they have a child. And he's saying, hope hope all that's well. I'm going to send you some money. Oh, I hear you're pregnant again. Probably won't be back until that baby's born. So if it's a boy, keep it. If it's a girl, throw it out. Aphrodite says hi. It's amazing how hardened the human heart can become to such weighty things. And the point that I want to make to you is this. This horrible thing was happening in huge numbers during the time that the New Testament is written, and it doesn't appear in the New Testament as an issue. Now, we know historically it was an issue. We know that Christians invented something in mass scale called orphanages where children could be taken and cared for and then adopted, and that this was an important part of the ministry of the early church. Praise God. But it wasn't more important than the gospel. It didn't overshadow what God had called them to do as his representatives. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 through 23, For though uh, I am free to all men, I have made myself slave to all so that I may win more. To the Jew I became as a Jew so that I might win the Jews and to those who are under the law as under the law though not being myself under the law so that I might win those who are under the law. I did what needed to be done because the gospel was the thing that mattered. I let go of all these other things. Now remember who Paul is. Paul is Saul, a Pharisee, a Hebrew of Hebrews raised under the most strict traditions of Gamaliel. He was the most law-loving strict religious person who had ever been born, according to him. And he said, I let all of that go if it gets in the way of the gospel because that's what matters most. 
I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. It matters more than any other thing that people know that they can be reconciled to God because Jesus Christ went and died to the cross on the cross and they can have an eternal relationship with him. That matters more than this life or anything else in this life. And our job is to represent Christ, is to be his ambassadors. I'm not saying it's not, it's not okay to take a position. Take a position. We need to. You know, Christians should be about fighting injustice. We should be standing against prejudice and hatred. We should be bright lights into the world of hope and mercy and compassion and generosity. And that's going to take some fighting. That's going to take taking a stand and having opinions. But how will we treat the people that we disagree with? And how will we love those who are against what we are about? We should be very careful that no issue comes to outweigh the importance of people being able to hear that God loves them and he died for them. I said I had three points. That was one. I promise the other two are shorter. The second point is that we can have opinions and we can personally choose sides. And we've got to find a way to do that without demonizing the people who disagree with us. Jesus showed us the way. He showed us how. We just have to want to do it and have the courage to do it. Matthew 5, 44, 46. Jesus said, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Probably one of the most understated, this has lost all impact to our ears. But it is so radical. It is so crazy. Love those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same. This blew me away as a new believer, as a young Christian when I read it. Because I had always found it very easy to like the people that were like me. I like myself a lot. And so those who remind me of me get my affection more easily. But the people who were not like me, it seemed like, you know, why love them? And this is exactly what Jesus is addressing here. Is he's saying everybody loves people who are like them. What's special about that? The worst people in the world love people that remind them of themselves. What's extraordinary is to love somebody who's so different from you. The only reason in the universe you could love that person is because you have God in your life. That is an exceptional thing. And that is what our Father is about. And if we are going to represent Him, that is what we should be about. We're not saying we can't pick sides. Thinking Christians can be on opposite sides of a lot of issues. Because we may not agree. We might agree on what the problems are, but we may not agree on the solution. And we need to be very careful about moralizing those solutions and then how we treat people who disagree with us on those solutions. Don't put something in your yard or in your virtual yard online that's going to turn people away from the gospel. I, I don't care how frustrated you are. If you're a Christian, you're an ambassador for Christ, and he, he doesn't need your political ideas getting in the way of people coming to know him. And that's what you are doing if you're attacking the other side. You're on a crusade. And you're no different from a crusader. If that's what you want to do, if that's what you want to be about, know that you are misrepresenting who God has called you to be. Don't make moral judgments about people you don't know or understand. That's easy. What is more easy than just dismissing people who disagree with you? Find out. Open the door. 
how could we be so far apart? You must think things that are completely different than what I think. We both are fearfully and wonderfully made. We're both image bearers of the creator God of the universe. If we're this far apart, there must be a reason. And enjoy engaging and understanding what makes people tick when they're very different from you. Don't wall yourself off from other points of view. Don't exclude people from your life because you think they're dumb and they have bad ideas. Value them. Believe that as much as this person seems like you know, they have no value, that just simply, absolutely cannot be true according to your Bible. That person is fearfully and wonderfully made. And you've got to get in there and find some of that wonderful somehow. I promise you it's there. Greg Lukanoff in Coddling of the American Mind said, seek understanding. That means getting out, seeking out challenges rather than eliminating or avoiding everything that feels unsafe. Freeing yourself from cognitive distortions rather than always trusting your initial feelings and taking a generous view of other people and looking for nuance rather than assuming the worst about people within a simplistic us-versus-them mentality. What great wisdom that is for our time. Don't buy the lie that people who disagree with you are dumb. There are reasons. Seek to understand even if you can't agree. Tim Keller writes, tolerance isn't about not having beliefs, it's about how your beliefs lead you to treat people who disagree with you. This is where biblical Christianity is unparalleled in its beauty and distinctiveness. I would just, I, I love that sentence, I would just tra- change one small thing. This is where biblical Christianity should be unparalleled in its beauty and its distinctiveness. This, guys, is where we should be unparalleled in our beauty and our distinctiveness, loving those we disagree with. Contempt for our fellow man is a grievous sin. Jesus told the the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee is the religious, righteous, you know, law-living, religious type who goes to worship God and is like, thank you, I'm not like all these other people. And he goes on to name how grateful he is for all the people that he's not like. The tax collector, who we're supposed to understand, this is like the filth and the scum of the earth, right? This is the most sinful kind of person, goes before God and beats his chest and says, forgive me, I'm a sinner. And Jesus said, it's the tax collector who would walk away with their sins forgiven. And he told the story to a group of people because they were being self-righteous and holding in contempt those who weren't like them. Arthur Brooks, again, in his book, Love Your Enemies, writes, social scientists define contempt as anger mixed with disgust. These two emotions form a toxic combination, like ammonia mixed with bleach. In other words, of the 19th century uh, philosopher Arthur Schopenhauer, contempt is the unsullied conviction of the worthlessness of another. I feel that sometimes when I'm driving. (laughs) And even that needs to change. This is not the way for image bearers of God to treat one another. It's a grievous sin. Be very careful about moralizing political parties. Somebody who says to me, you have to be a Republican or you can't be a Christian. I'd like for them to show me where in the Bible it says that. I could show them the part where it says not to add to the gospel. But I don't know where it says that you have to agree with one party or another. We may be able, it's true, we can moralize some specific issues. I mean, it's not that everything is like, you know, equal and well, one side or the other. There are some things that, you know, we need to make some decisions on. And there's some bad decisions to be made out there. But both parties have them. Neither is exempt. And we certainly have to agree that we, can, we, we must not view people with whose politics we view as our enemies are not God's enemies. And as an ambassador, people who are not God's enemies are not my enemies. 
They're not the enemy. They're the mission. They're the point. Otherwise, why not just get us the heck out of here? Take us home, Father, if there's no one here left to love. There has to be broad room for people of different political positions within the body of Christ. I'm going to be real with you. I'm going to give you a very controversial example. I uh, have historically found it very difficult to vote for anyone who was not pro-life. And I feel a lot of conflict about that and have felt a lot of conflict about that because there are people who are not pro-life who I think have something to say. And some people would even say, you know, uh, people who are pro-choice tend to have more compassion toward the poor. Others would not say that. That's an argument we could get in. But I will say this. If you think that pro-choice people tend to be more compassionate toward the poor, I don't think you're a crazy person. I understand where you're coming from. And if you think, you know, the whole other argument on the other side that it's not really helping the poor, I understand where you're coming from too. But that's a tension that I felt. And I talked to my friend who uh, is a, a Christian who I love and respect and think very highly of. And I, I brought up this point. I said, you know, I just have a hard time with this. And they put it to me this way. What they said was this. They said, I'm pro-life. I am not pro-choice. But the question is, is whether or not you're going to make the abortion issue a litmus test where you vote for somebody under that condition and that condition alone. And they said, the reality is, is so you know, most elections where you're voting for somebody has nothing to do with the abortion issue and that person will never have any power over that issue. And I was like, okay, yes. But what about like presidential elections? And they said, okay, it can matter in a presidential election. Here's how it matters. A president says they will appoint conservative judges. Okay, you're counting on the politician who's trying to get elected to follow through on what they say. That doesn't always work out. Then you're counting on the judge to do what they are expected to do. Histor history has proven that doesn't always work out. But let's say the president does what they're supposed to do, the, the judges do what they're supposed to do, and eventually you get enough conservative judges that they overturn Roe v. Wade. Then it goes back to the states. It doesn't banish abortion, it puts it back to the states where it was before Roe v. Wade. And if you want to vote on that one issue and ignore all the other issues that you might care about because of that thing, that's your right and your stewardship as a Christian to do what you think God wants you to do with your vote. And I'm telling you this because I thought about it in a new way. I thought, that's an interesting perspective. That's a rational perspective. That's somebody who's thinking about something. They're praying about something. They care about something. And it doesn't matter whether or not I agree with them. I can respect that they've thought it through and that they are working it through with God and doing their best to do what is right. And that's what I'm arguing for, is a little bit of understanding and discussion with people who have views that we don't agree with. I think we get a lot of political uh, guidance from Scripture. I'll share with you what I see in the Bible about politics. I think the Bible is pro-life. It says God abhors the spilling of innocent blood. I think the Bible is also pro-women's rights. It says we are neither male nor female. We are all one in Christ Jesus. I don't know why Christians aren't at the front forefront of women's rights to protect them from sexual harassment, to seek for equal wages for women. I don't know why we're not leading the way in that, but we're not. I think the Bible is very strong on environmental issues. God says in Genesis 1, he put us on the planet to take care of what he had created. Regardless of what you think about climate change, you have to wrestle with we are here to take care of the place because it's representative of the creative genius of our God. I don't know what to tell you about capital punishment. <laughs> the Bible is for and against capital punishment, as far as I can tell. In Genesis 9, 6, it says, he who spills the blood of man by man, his blood will be spilled. Jesus doesn't contradict that, but with the woman caught in adultery... She is under a death sentence, and he says, he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. So apparently, 
The death sentence is real and something that should happen, but you should be sinless if you're going to carry it out. I'm excluded from that. The Bible is pretty anti-materialistic. It says that the love of money is the root of all evil. And neither political party seems to be running on a platform of vote for me, you'll never be rich. The Bible has great concern for the poor. He who mocks the poor mocks his maker. The Bible has great concern for immigrants and for refugees. The Bible has great concern for the equality and value of all people, of, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of gender, regardless of religion, regardless of sexual orientation. We are all fearfully and wonderfully made image bearers of the creator God of the universe. And as far as God is concerned, we're worth dying for. How can we look at one another with disdain? And the Bible also says marriage is between one man and one woman and God's ideal as the creator of marriage. That's what he says it's supposed to be. The Bible is for justice. It's for doing what's right and treating people right. It's for standing against evil and fighting corruption. And it's big on personal freedom that people may be free to disagree with the Bible. And to disagree with God, they're going to have to work that out with him, not me. The bottom line here, I'll say it one more time, neither party has cornered the market on God's values. A non-Christian must not be made to think that they have to vote in a particular way in order to become a Christian. We should stand against that. That is right in the way of so many people knowing and hearing the gospel. Yeah, we got to make decisions. And your decisions and my decisions may not match up, but I bet our values do. I bet what we care about does. And that's more important. Because we work and live within a corrupt system where there are no easy answers. And that should not put us in a position where we judge our neighbor with contempt because they've thoughtfully and creatively come to different decisions than we have. John Wesley said, I met those of our society who had votes in the ensuing election and I advised them, one, to vote without fee or reward for the person they judged most worthy and to speak no evil of the person they voted against and to take care their spirits were not sharpened against those who had voted on the other side. Oh, God, America, could you, could you take a minute and think about that? We're going to lose what does make us great if we can't do that. And God is showing us how. If only there were some ambassadors who could go forth and make his case. The third and final point, this division represents an incredible opportunity for the gospel. Now is the time. 2020, January 2020, up to November, the gospel could shine like it hasn't shined in many years because the darkness is going to be darker than it's been in our lifetimes. The hate, the vitriol, the discord, the immature, the fear, the darkness is going to be all around us. And anyone who stands up, anyone who takes a stand and decides to love his neighbor and to treat the people he disagrees with with kindness and to be an advocate for others to do the same is going to stand out like a sore thumb. What an opportunity for us. The next year is going to make the last 10 look like nothing. Statistics say 90% of Americans say this is the most divisive time in their lifetime. 70% of Americans, they're being called the silent majority, the, the exhausted majority. They don't like what's going on on either side, and they just feel frustrated and like they don't know what to do about it. Many, many people feel despair 
They don't know where we're going. This culture is scary. But instead of reaching out, instead of doing something, they want to wall off and treat each other with contempt. Let's do something different. Let's do something meaningful. You know, to have contempt for non-Christians and then try to force the laws of our land to force non-Christians to live as though they were Christians is insane. It's insane because none of us can live according to God's law either, first. And secondly, even though we try, we have the Holy Spirit of God and we still fail because we're fallen, broken people. So if you don't believe those things, how would you like someone else who can't live those things out either to come and tell you how to live your life? It's dangerous. The gospel is more important than who our next president is. I know. Not everyone agrees. The gospel is more important than what we do on immigration. It's more important than climate change, than health care, the budget deficit, the legality of abortion, and your student loans being forgiven. (laughs) Depending on how old you are, you're offended at different things on this list. (laughs) But I hope you'll wrestle with how true it is. The best thing that we can do is this. If you don't know God, you can be reconciled to him tonight. You can start a relationship with a God who loves you and who's deeply involved in this situation and who's neither a Democrat nor Republican. A God who wants to bring love and truth and unity and mercy and compassion and justice into the world and wants to bring you into his family. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden and I will give you rest. Boy, Is it easy to be weary and heavy laden right now? Answer the call. Open the door. You don't have to change your political views in order to agree that you need a Savior. And Jesus is that Savior. 2 Corinthians 5.21. I'm going to read it one more time. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's as simple as turning to God and saying, I have evil that I have perpetrated, I have wrong that I have done, and I need your forgiveness. I may not be ready to to change my whole life, but I'm ready to stop trying to justify my bad behavior, and I'm willing to let you come in and show me how to have a rich life. For the rest of us, we can be an advocate for love. That's what we've got to do we got to be that example. we got to stand out. we got to model kindness to the people we disagree with. And we have to stand against this incredible wall of horrors that's moving right toward us at breakneck speed. And we got to do it now. we got to get in the game so that we can be what God has called us to be. Let me just close with this thought. Imagine a scenario... We're in our city in Columbus, Ohio. People say, you know what, Christians nationally, I don't know what I think about how they've responded, but in my city, some churches have gotten together with this idea that we should love one another during this time. And that's pretty cool. There's something there that's pretty sweet. And I want to let you know that we had a meeting and we're going to meet with some other pastors and they're in agreement with us on this that we want to come together and do something in our city this year. And I don't know what that's going to be exactly, but we are locking arms under this message to stand together and say the gospel is what matters. And there's a real chance that we maybe could do something on the order of tens and twenties of thousands in our city to help those who don't know that God loves them and that it's about Jesus' death on the cross and not about politics. That's what we've got.
Thank you, God, that you are not like us, that you love us even though we shake our fists at you in rebellion, that you care for us uh, even though we bite and devour one another, that you died for us even though you are the one good thing that deserves to be exempt from any judgment or pain. And we pray, God, that our church and our city can do something in these next 10 months, 11 months that would make you pleased and that would show people who you really are. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.